Lord, I just want to thank you for the gift of this time. You know I don't take it lightly. What a sweet, wonderful gift it is to be able to sit in your presence, sit in your word, be led by your spirit, and to shed ourselves. That the more we shed ourselves, the more we see you. That we wouldn't be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. God, that we would know and approve your perfect, wonderful, perfect will. God, that today, in this place where the, the soundtrack of our life gets a bit quieter, fill me with your Holy Spirit, God, to do through me what I cannot humanly do. Minister to each of us, God, I pray. Speak fluent us individually where we need to hear you and corporately where we as a family could draw near. Thank you, God. Redeem every second. Lord, take my lips and attach them to your mouth. Wait a minute. Take my lips and attach them to your heart. <laughs> Try that again. And God, with that, please don't let me say anything amiss and don't let me not say anything you intend. But Lord, minister now profoundly, I pray. I pray that you would remove every distraction, be them internal or external, and make this time your time now, I pray. Have at us, God, we pray. Delight in us. Enjoy us. And may we celebrate you now, we pray. Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority, the final say. This, this book that you have in your hands shuts down every maniac, every selfish, crazy, blind ambition. It really does. It breaks down every politic that's contrary to the will of God. So don't just believe me. Search that scripture. Know that book. Here's where we're at. It started with a promise. A promise that God said that he would deliver his people with a very, very clear plan, by the way. And that very clear plan, by the way, uh, included a hardening, a hardening of Pharaoh's heart that God had promised, by the way, even more specifically, just a few verses before this in chapter 7, verse 5. And he tells us the very heart of it. He says that all of Egypt would know that I'm the Lord. God's intent on flexing here was not because he's being threatened. It isn't because he thinks that someone is sort of challenging his authority, but first and foremost because he loves his people and he loves the world, the people in it, and he really wants them to know that he's the Lord. The result of that from the people is that they bow down their heads and they worship. Now, all they may hear is the end result and not the route. It tends to be normal for people. God knows the end to everything, and he also knows the route. Seldom do we really fully grab the end, but when we are in the middle of the route, it tends to be frightening. Now, God had said that there will be a hardening of Pharaoh. And by the way, God really won't harden Pharaoh's heart that we see specifically until the sixth of ten plagues. He'll do it three times in total. But in all of that, the people don't realize that it's going to be rough before it's going to be gone. And for some, they're praying, God, get me out of this thing. And God says, I'm going to. But to do that, I'm going to systematically take down everything that stands against me. Not just this little problem you have, but everything that stands in competition to me. What we're going to see by chapter 7, verse 14, all the way through to 12, verse 30, will be, in essence, 10 plagues. 
They are specific, they are organized, and they are intentional. And we can take just about every god that the Egyptians worship and put them within those ten categories. You see, what God is doing is he's breaking down every other thing that's worshipped so the only thing standing is him by the time it's done. So not just the Israeli would know that he's the Lord, but that the Egyptian would know he's the Lord too. And thus, when they do leave, they leave a mixed multitude. It wasn't just 100% Israeli. It was Israeli and Egyptian. For what Egyptian in the right mind would stay around while all of their gods have been destroyed? As a matter of fact, even the servants of Pharaoh will approach Pharaoh and say, why don't you let these people go? Egypt is destroyed. The plagues will start in verse 14. Working our way up to it is this little showdown on the way, this sort of warning shot before it begins. From 14, 714 again, through 1230, the plagues will go in three specific waves. Two will come forewarned, and the third one will come without warning. Then two more will come warned, and another one will come without warning. Two more will come forewarned, and then another one will come without warning. With each of the forewarnings, there is this simple command to Pharaoh, this challenge to Pharaoh. And as I'm sitting alone last um, yesterday, well, not very alone, I was with my dog, uh, our dog, in the sun, something really stood out to me because every time what he's saying is, let go. That's what he's saying. Let go. Let go. Let go. And then another. Let go. Let go. And then another. Let go. Let go. And then another. And then God finally in the tenth plague takes. It's interesting because in the book of Romans, chapter 1, we read that the wrath of God is being revealed against the wickedness and godlessness of men who suppress the truth by their own ungodliness. For what has been made of God has been clearly seen. All that God has done is clearly seen. His invisible attributes, his divine godhood, all clearly seen. God has revealed it in him so that there is no man with an excuse. It says, although they knew God, they neither gave thanks to him or glorified him as God. See, they traded. That's what God says was man's problem. They traded the gift of God. They traded the glory of God. They traded the goodness of God. They traded the grace of God. Three times, interestingly enough, in the book of Romans, in chapter 1, it says, therefore, he gave them over. Three times. I find it interesting. God knows you're bent on destroying yourself, running to your own ways. And so God puts his hands in front of you. He puts a hedge, if you will, and you're pushing and you're fighting and you're going, no, no, let me out. God says, you don't really want that. He goes, no, 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 no. And he lets go. He lets go. And you run a little bit and you get beat up and you get smacked and he catches you again. And he goes, what about now? And you're like, no, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Let me go. Let me go. And God goes, no, you don't want to. No, no, I really do. And he lets you go again. And now you're like this and you're like, no, no, really, I'm fine. And God's like, when, when? And finally, we read that the greatest wrath of God, to be honest, is to just let you go where you want to go. And that's the worst part. Interesting, because in the book of Revelation, there are three sets of judgments, too. So it shouldn't surprise me. God has been preparing us for all of that in the book that's the way out, the road out, the book of Exodus. Now, for what it's worth in all of that, let go, let go, let go. Moses and his mouth, his brother, will go to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was in his prime. 
Pharaoh was in a place where as much power could be granted to Pharaoh has been granted. And God has a way, by the way, of making sure that your enemy has every advantage before he takes him down so that he can't possibly say that it was a bad day for him. When Elijah goes to Mount Carmel to, to stand against the prophets of Baal, Baal was supposed to be known to live on Mount Carmel, ride on the back of an ox, and throw lightning bolts. So he goes, why don't we meet on Mount Carmel? We'll slaughter an axe, and we'll see which one answers with a lightning bolt. Hello, did you get it? I mean, that's like you. You're sort of, you're not even one meter tall, and you're challenging Goliath to a basketball game. And then you're going, but don't worry, God's on my side. I mean, you get the idea here. God will let your enemy be in prime form before he takes him down, so you know that there is nothing that can stand against him. And that will be the case here. So what happens is, as Moses says, well, his brother, let my people go that they may worship me or serve me in the wilderness. And of course, Pharaoh sees it as a power challenge. And any power challenge, when a guy is threatened, he flexes. And so he flexes with greater bondage, with greater, he makes life even worse. And his response is, who is the Lord? You see, what the enemy can respond with is trying to put you in greater bondage, make your life rougher. That's it. So the people now are really grieved by this bondage. Moses comes back. God says, okay, go and tell the people. I'm going to go and step into this. And Moses tries to speak to them, and the people are too deafened by their grief because of this. And then God says, now it's my turn. See, all the enemy could offer you is to try to put you in greater, worse bondage. But now God steps up. And he systematically walks into the strong man's house and starts pulling out one thing after another till there's nothing left but the strong man himself that will be taken down. The same thing happens, of course, at the cross. And that takes us to verse 8. Look at it with me. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves. Then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and they did so, just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. So the magicians of Egypt, well, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. Every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard. He did not heed them, as the Lord had said. Now, you don't know. You haven't read these pages. You haven't read the chapter. You're seeking to follow God, and you're going to know whatever he's going to tell you is going to be crazy. You're not in a position here where what God's going to tell you is going to be ordinary. It's not going to be normal. There's no part of that. And by the way, ordinary and normal in a morgue are dead people. You're aware of that. And a place where the world is spiritually dead, as God tells us, You're the only living thing in the morgue. Do you really want to succumb to the peer pressure of acting like all of the corpses when you've been set free and made alive in Jesus Christ? And should we expect God to tell you something that would make it seem like it's an ordinary day for you? He says, this is what I want you to do. Now, he's already done it before, but he's done it to the people, if if I can remind you. Throw it on your staff, let it become a serpent. It's a specific serpent. It's the serpent, by the way, that sits on the headdress of Pharaoh. Some of us have already seen those pictures from prior times. And the Egyptians, much like the Jewish people, will seek a sign. The Greeks, on the other hand, they just want to understand. They want wisdom. And of course, Paul will say, we preach Christ crucified, 
It's a stumbling block for those that are looking for a miracle, and it's utter nonsense for those who are looking for wisdom. But for those who will believe, it is the power of God to save. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how bad you're off. It doesn't matter how deep in the pit you are. This is a rope, and it's sort of like, imagine there you are drowning in quicksand, and with that in mind, all of a sudden the rope has been thrown to you, and you're looking for a miracle, and you have no idea the miracle that's in front of you. You're looking for logic. Give me wisdom on how to climb out of this pit. I say, how about this? Grab the rope. Well, that's too simple. Yeah, it's so simple, you can do it. And you can do it right. Grab the rope. Well, with that in mind, Pharaoh's response again is, who is the Lord? And God says, well, let's just show him who I am. So here is Moses and his brother, and Aaron's now got this rod in his hand, and he's got, if you will, if you think about it, he's got a snake and a stick waiting to happen. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that would be pretty darn cool. I mean, it isn't like every day you think someone's going to throw it on a stick. It's going to become a cobra, a big thing in front of you, right? So you think, okay, well, Pharaoh's sort of looking for some form of miracle. He's going to ask, give me something to prove it, and you're going to throw this thing down, and everything's going to be all cool and groovy. But God never said that that will be the end of it. Matter of fact, what God said was, is that Pharaoh's heart will be hardened in it. This is all just part of the road to your deliverance. So he doesn't know what's going to happen in the end of it. And I want you to see almost the humor in this, if you will. So what happens is, imagine there's a king sitting on his throne. Come forward, right? And of course, at this point, remember, they've come once before and said, let my people go. And of course, Yul Brenner, I mean, you know, um, Pharaoh has said, who are, you know, come on, for goodness sakes, get those people and we'll make them work harder. So things have been rough the last time they came in. So they've come in once before. It's clear Pharaoh knows their names. He said it the last time on their encounter. Moses and Aaron, what are you guys doing? So, so now they've come forward again. And then with that, imagine you've come in with this stick. You've got this big stick. It's a stick because you've been a shepherd now for 40 years. And you've walked in. There's, there's Moses, remember, he's not going to speak directly to Pharaoh because he's already argued with God about it. He's got to whisper it in his brother's ear. And his brother's ear has got to do something, right? And his brother's got to speak. So the two of them kind of walk in. You've got sort of the quiet, strong, silent type. And then mouth next to him, brother Aaron who, by the way, is the older of the two. He's 83. So they both walk in. Pharaoh is sort of sitting there, and you can see Moses going, and and Aaron goes, and he throws down his stick, and it becomes a serpent. It becomes a cobra, nonetheless. And you can see Pharaoh sort of sitting up there at first going, hmm, that's pretty cool. Let's call on our guys. So he calls in then. Notice it says it's in two different groups. Some would call it three, but notice that the sort of magicians tends to be sort of the umbrella of what it is. It says, according to this, that Pharaoh also called his wise men and his sorcerers. Do you see that? So the magicians of Egypt, so the magicians would be the wise men and the sorcerers. So he calls it. Now, there has to be at least four of them because they're both in plural, right? So we've got wise men. That's at least two. Could be many more. And assumedly so. And sorcerers. There's at least two because it's plural. So let's just say there's 10. For just, I'm just throwing out a random number. You can pick whatever number you want. And so all of a sudden, these guys all come in with their sticks. Now, every sorcerer has a scepter. You're aware of that. Remember, Moses came in originally with a staff, and that staff was as a shepherd. That thing was semblant of the fact that he'd been taking care of dumb animals for, four, for 40 years. These guys have their sort of little Harry Potter thing going on. They've got their whatever. And so they all have their sticks too. So Pharaoh sort of sitting there. He calls the guys in. All right, guys, look at this. This was a stick. What can you do? 
and they kind of huddle maybe. They kind of open up their books. They review a couple Harry Potter books or whatever, and movies. And they go, and they throw it on their sticks, and they all become serpents too. At which point Pharaoh's like, good. Now, what do you do if you're, Pharaoh, if you're Aaron or Moses at this moment? You're thinking, wow, this is awkward. Would, would you think about it? Do you say in a moment like that, like we said, let my people go? What do you do? Okay, so you kind of stand in there for a moment. And, and by the way, God never even tells us that how they exit, but he does tell us because then God says, the next verse, is God's going to say, now go back to them. So they had to leave somewhere. But he doesn't even tell how, right? So you're kind of like, uh, hmm. Now at that moment, you're just kind of awkward. You're not really looking at much. And then you look down and you realize on Pharaoh's throne are a pit of snakes. There's, a, there's just a big Floor full of snakes. Floor full of cobras sitting down there. For a moment. And then somewhere down the line, you've got to look down. And as you look down, you realize one of them's got a really healthy appetite. The one that Aaron threw down. And the one that Aaron threw down now eats all of the other snakes. All of them. Now, I wonder, was the stick heavier when he picked it up? Was it bigger? Was it longer? Did it burp? I mean, all the things that could have happened, right? The Pharaoh seems to take no notice of that, but you knew it. And you know who else knew it? The servants of Pharaoh and the magicians of Pharaoh. They all seem to notice. Pharaoh didn't seem to notice at this moment because he has no interest in letting go. He's not looking for clues to submit to a God he doesn't want to submit to. He's looking for clues of how not to. So somewhere down the line, Aaron's got to reach down and grab the tail of the hungry, hungry snake and pick this thing up, and back it is to a stick. And at this moment, something's really different than the moment just a moment ago. And that is, he's the only one in the room with a stick left. Are you aware of that? Remember, a stick is supposed to be a sign of your authority. And what would it be like now if you were one of those magicians? Would you pretend? Would you just, you know, try to find something and grab it and put it in your hand? Or would you just kind of look and go, well, we're going to go back till, you know, we're done. We've done our snake thing. I mean, and you're standing there now with your stick and you're looking at everyone else with no sticks. Now, at that moment, do you change your attitude and kind of like, <laughs> I got my stick. Where your stick? Your stick's in my stick. This is where your stick is. If I wanted to beat you with a stick right now, I'm the only one in the room with a stick. I'm going to leave now. Just going to leave with my stick. Leaving with my stick. Now, I wonder, did Aaron look at Moses and say, do you have anything to say? And Aaron's like, and Moses like, got the stick, let's go. So off they go. It's a bit of a weird encounter, don't you think? Now, which one of you that night would have gone home and gone, we are on the road to deliverance. I'm, I'm so free. Freedom! You're thinking, so we have a full stick. That's it. Who would have thought, right? That this, that this stick that becomes the very symbol of the enemy's authority got lifted back up. And when it got lifted up, all of the other authority in that room was taken away. Listen to that again. When that stick got lifted up, all the other authority in that room got taken away. And I think, wow, there's a Messiah who in his perfect love for us will take us to the book of Numbers where the people will be bitten by snakes. And God will say, take the symbol of judgment, brass, and carve into that a snake and put it on the top of a pole and lift it up. And if someone would look in faith, now you say, well, that's dumb. Look, at when you're dying, you'll try all kinds of dumb things. It really doesn't matter. 
If you're dying and someone says, if you covered yourself in chunky peanut butter for two days and ran through a field of bees, if you actually, you'll get to the point where you'll try it. You'll be very stung, but nonetheless. Um, and, the, and, and, and ultimately, Jesus will say in John 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent on the stick, that everyone who looked to it to be saved, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that anyone who would look to him would be saved. See, the Son of Man went and took the very symbol of the enemy's authority, all death, and took it on. And when that stick was lifted up, all the authority that stood in the room was taken away. Now, the problem was Pharaoh didn't notice that. And there will be those that won't either. But Aaron did. The servants did. And the magicians, well, they've got a work to do. By the way, they're going to be able to imitate the first, only the first two of the uh, ten plagues. Well, here, let's, we'll get there in just a moment. Look at it with me. So with that in mind then, and by the way, not every wise man, by the way, is a wicked man. We know that because Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were all wise men according to Daniel 2, for what it's worth. And we know there was another group of really cool wise men because they brought gifts in the book of Matthew, if you might f be familiar, which become really important for a very poor family that were now staying in Bethlehem because they were going to have to flee to Egypt. And how were they going to get there? Well, someone was kind enough to give them some gold, well, for what it's worth. Now, here we are at the end of all of this. And I ask you a question. If a miracle takes place, are you sure it's just of God because it's a miracle? Now, clearly, it doesn't say that the other ones appeared where, you know, it's like Moses' really became a snake, but the other ones really did a good job of looking like it became a snake. They all became snakes. And there are some that would really genuinely believe that if all, it, all they needed was a miracle, that they would believe it. The, end, the entire end times is set up upon false miracles for which people will be duped. And just looking for a miracle is such a dangerous place to be. But let me ask you this question. Because Jesus, by the way, says, and it really takes us to the, to the nitty-gritty of it. In John 14, 12, it says, when Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, greater miracles than even this will you do. The question is, what did they do that was greater than Jesus did? For Jesus to look and say, you'll do greater miracles than I have recorded in the Gospels. And you think, what in the world? It all depends on what you really think is a miracle. Now, from a, from a temporary perspective, a miracle could be winning the lottery. From a temporary perspective, you could be removed from having the flu. And we'll be honest, those things can be, in some cases, a very much a big blessing or a tremendous curse. It all depends. But from an eternal perspective, if you were healthy and rich and going to hell, it would not be a great miracle in the sight of God. There is no greater miracle in all of Scripture than what has already happened to every one of you who believe. Because you were snatched from the kingdom of darkness, from the power of Satan, from the very grave and your guilt and your wickedness, and you were brought into the arms of God's loving Son, declared innocent, adopted by the Father, and made his own, and sealed with his Holy Spirit. Could there be anything on earth that could possibly compare to that? One of those guys will stand up and in one day, roughly 3,000 people will say yes to Jesus. Could there be a greater miracle? And the reason I say that is, 
If some guy threw smoke mirrors and poof, walewama abracadabra, pulls a ra- rabbit out of a hat, or waves his lame coat and everyone falls over and barks like dogs, and I don't want to pick on anyone specifically, I'll pick on everyone if I can, including myself, the greatest miracle will be you being transformed into the arms of God. Scripture says we were born spiritually dead, walking around in the lusts of our flesh and mind. So if you'll pardon me, you were a spiritual zombie. There you go. You were walking dead, fulfilling the lusts of your flesh and and mind, and were by nature a child of wrath. But God, who is rich in his mercy because of the great love in which he had for you, when you were still dead in your trespasses and sin, made you alive together with Christ. You realize that happened? God raised the dead. And not just for a moment. See, the problem with raising Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11 is that he's still not on earth. Somewhere down the line, he's still going to have to die. But spiritually, you will never die because you have been set free from the power of death because that stick was raised up to save you. Now, for what it's worth, and if you are looking for a miracle, might I say to you, may God do that miracle through you over and over and over to your family, to your neighborhood, to your workplace, to your schoolroom. May that be the miracle we see. Because if we were all in the flesh, this would be a real scary room to be in right now for all of us. And so now the challenge has begun. Chapter, f- chapter 7, verse 14, we start stepping into our first of the plagues. Now, while we go through these, I'm going to do a bit of a challenge with you. Because see, what God is doing is he's removing what is worship that is instead of him. And the dangerous thing is you may not worship, for instance, in this case, the Nile, but the very things in which it came from. My job is not to insult you unless you're believing a lie. And I would rather, us, I'd rather insult you, if I can say it this way, with the truth than massage you into hell any day. So look it. If you want to be offended, that's okay. Make sure you take it up with the author of the book. In verse 14, for what it's worth, by the way, the magicians will ultimately conclude this is the finger of God. Pharaoh will say twice, I have sinned and still not repent. He will ultimately say, I've been a fool. And he will will die in his sin. But can I just say, in all of this, from this point, 714 to 1230, the term Lord will be used at least 72 times. You think God's trying to get a point across. What Lord means, if you remember, is simply, he's the boss, he's in charge. Now, understand there's a big difference between being a believer in Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus. Being a believer says, I'll take that get out of hell free card anytime you want. Oh, I believe in Jesus because I don't want to go to hell. But the Bible does not say, and I'm just going to tell you as plainly as I can, the Bible does not say if you can believe in your heart that Jesus is Savior and confess with your mouth the Savior Jesus. It says if you believe Jesus is Lord. And Lord means you've surrendered your life to him, that he's the boss. Now, can I just say, nobody in the world is equipped naturally to submit themselves to a God they can't see. That takes a supernatural act for which God is in the business of doing. So the reason I say that there's this whole hate the church church, have you seen it lately? There's churches that's like, we don't want to call ourselves anything. We're going to call ourselves a group of believers. 
I'm like, so what do you believe in? Because it says actually in the book of James that even demons believe that Jesus is, and they have brains enough to shudder. Something happens at least to them. My prayer is that God would make us a family of disciples, people who are students of this Jesus, who have surrendered to his lordship. Jesus says, not everyone that calls me Lord, Lord, will actually enter the kingdom of heaven. And he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Have you forgotten what Lord means? So here we go. You ready? So the Lord, that's where we started, so you don't have to get far before you find the first of them, said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard, in case you haven't noticed. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, when he goes out to the water, and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And the rod in which is turned into a serpent you shall take in your hand. And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you. He'll be called the Lord God of the Hebrews, by the way, four times in these challenges. Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. Now, there was a period of time, by the way, and that time is roughly around June, when the banks of the Jordan overflow. I'm Jordan, forgive me. The banks of the Nile overflow. Now that is a really, really important time for the Egyptians because when the flood banks of the Nile overflow, it brings with it some very, very rich silt. In other words, when, this, when the flood comes back down, that ground that is there is dug up and taken and used because it is the richest soil to grow just about anything on. The people expect the Pharaoh, by the way, I remind you, they assume that he is the connection, the bridge between the God over an underworld and humankind to be the master of what they called the Ka. Ka, in essence, is the order of the universe. So it was Pharaoh's job to keep the universe in order. Now, how hard would that be for you? Would you like that job? Thinking that the world's looking at you trying to keep the universe in order. An earthquake, they look at you. A tornado, they look at you. It's bad weather. They were planning a wedding and it rained. They look at you. There should be order to this universe and he's the one who's supposed to be keeping it. So he goes to that river specifically during that time to worship the Nile. And it's important for him to do so because if he does so, the goal is that it doesn't overflow to the point where it starts destroying homes, but it isn't so small that it doesn't leave the silt they need. So let's start flashing a couple slides if we could for a moment here. This, by the way, and I'm going to just pull out a few of these things. The general idea of the Nile is, and hear me out on this, that it is the source of life. That is the Egyptian doctrine on the Nile. All life came from the Nile. By the way, I think even Darwin will pull from that to some degree. Guarded by, by the way, two particular gods or goddesses with the idea that one of them, by the way, will be the god of the crocodiles. We'll see him in a moment. And then another one that basically guards the flow from which all things come, fish and so forth. We'll go to the next slide. Um, oh, well, this one's a little hard to see. But if you can see, this is the idea of the Nile. And from it, by the way, come all people, all horses, all life. That's supposed to be the idea. And this, by the way, is a wall relief. We'll go to the next one. Um, here's the idea. Well, what do we do? The people then line up with the purpose, by the way, of worshiping everything that comes from the Nile, that the Nile provides, which includes, by the way, all of their agrarian culture. It means all of their fruits and vegetables and everything were, were grown in essence because of the flood of the Nile. Are you with me on this? So it's a very big deal. Next slide. 
So we're going quickly on them. Now, this, if you see here, is actually a person. This is one of the priests worshiping the Nile. On the other side of it, you have this one. In essence, it's supposed to be the current of the Nile. That's the idea of it. Next slide. Uh, you can, we can really see that one. That almost looks like Trista's ultrasound. Anyways, we'll go to the next one. That's okay. <laughs> it isn't, though, by the way. We'll just make that clear. Okay. This, by the way, is one of the several songs written to the Nile, by the way, in worship of the Nile, from which, by the way, the specific line here is my favorite because that line says that it brings us, oh, sweet fragrance. Remember that when we get into our text. Okay. Go to the next one. Now, with that, one of those guardians is this little cutie. And, of course, he's represented by a crocodile head, which, of course, one place you're not going to see this guy. This guy was quickly taken down when he actually left Egypt and went to Australia, and he was taken by the crocodile hunter. No, just kidding. Anyway, so he wrestled, and he went down in the whole bit. All right. So, um, so just know that this guy's going to pop up later on in, in text as well. Okay, next slide. And you'll see, by the way, people then providing worship to old croc himself. Do I have any more slides or is that the last one? Okay. Okay. Now, I'm just giving you some stuff in regards to some wall reliefs that you'll find in that area, by the way, because it was a very, very big deal. But let's face it, in the Middle East and in everywhere, to be honest, if you have no water, you really don't have life. Water is necessary. It's why anytime you try to check out a planet, it's the first thing you look for. If you can't find water, what's going to live there? And so the reason I say that is is that the, what God goes after first is the source of life. What really is life there? You know what's interesting? If you go to the book of Genesis, chapter 2, when God makes Adam, and he goes very specifically about it, we read that God breathed into Adam the breath of life, and Adam became a living being, became a man, a living man. And at that moment, Adam opens his eyes, or however you want to put it, and his brain has to calculate almost infinite data at a single time. Think about it. See, when you get your eyesight, by the way, with your eyesight has to come a mental library of everything that you see. Because part of what your brain calculates as it looks at every image, I mean, your brain is, it's unbelievable. It's unimaginable how brilliant your brain is, even if you don't think you're very smart. As your brain calculates, for instance, with every image it sees, whether, for instance, it's, there's a threat to it, whether you can approach that thing, whether you're familiar with that thing or not, whether you're f- whether you, in, in regards to whether that thing has some sentimental value or not to you. Those things are all being calculated within the, the glimpse of a second. So much so that you start seeing something come at you and it's barking, and, and you realize that that thing has been, had a tendency to bite you. Your heart immediately click into fight-and-flight mode without you having to think much about it. Now, when, for instance, in John 9, when Jesus restores sight to the man born blind, think about how brilliant it was that God not only had to give that man sight, he may never even had eyeballs, but he also had to give him a library in the back of his head where his brain would just explode because of all the images that he has to see because he doesn't even have a reference of what those things are. Well, imagine being Adam. You open up your eyes, and what's the first thing you, what's the first data you gather? That this God who is breathing life into you, the first fact you gather is, whoever you are, you gave me life. That's the first fact you get. And I think it's interesting. That was the first fact. Now, God could have just said, man be, like he did with light or with everything else, and he didn't. 
He could have just made it happen, but he formed man and took the responsibility of actually making contact with the man by breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. Think about how different that was from everything else he'd done. If God had said, man be, and man opened up his eyes, he'd be like, wow, where am I? What am I doing? Who am I? But the fact that the first thing he gathers is, whoever you are, you gave me life. You see, that's so fundamental to God. And by the way, Man's in verse 20, is verse 7, I think, of chapter 2. A woman won't be brought into about verse 22. And there's a lot that man should work out before he gets married. And I mean that sincerely. Especially if she's going to be his helper, he should figure out what it is he's doing before she tries to figure out how to help him do it. Well, the first thing he needs to realize is who gives him life, because if he doesn't, he'll try to make the wife give him life instead. And that, by the way, is a sure recipe for disaster, for disenchantment, and you'll just see people that they're just, they're, I mean, and they're trying to suck from a, st- from a straw that isn't going to give them what they need because it wasn't intended to. And I think it's interesting that God goes right for the vein right at the beginning. And so I can start with this with you. What's really life to you? I mean, even if you call yourself a Christian, have you been convinced that somehow God can save you from hell, but real life, now that's for the world to get. It's clubbing. It's meeting girls, meeting guys, it's getting in relationships, it's, it's what? Getting stuff, getting rich, getting popular, getting famous, getting whatever it is. Because until it gets reconciled, who gives and who is life, you will battle all of the other things for the rest of it. See, the moment that I actually, I, I gave my life to Jesus, well, I surrendered to an altar call at 19, which, of course, hopefully you would think were a few years ago, although it wasn't. And, but it wasn't until 23, to be honest, that I ever even really knew who he was. I could say Jesus became my Savior at 19, but he became my Lord at age 23. And to be honest, the difference was, I was laying in a 700-square-foot room with 11 other roommates. We were like roaches, staring at the ceiling in my little pad of carpet, saying, God, I don't even know who you are. But if you're willing to reveal yourself to me, I'll give you every bit of who I am. And God would send me out of the place I was to another state in America altogether. And it would be there that someone would say, you know that book you carry? Why don't you read it? Someone told me that, and it talked about the biggest duh. I had been a Christian for about four years now, but I had never seen a book open. I was on a first-name basis with every pastor. I went to church every Sunday. Now, I didn't say I went to a good one, but I had never seen a Bible open by anyone. And the moment I opened up that beautiful book, I fell in love with the author. I genuinely did. My, my Christian walk became a dance. And ironically, in all of that, I took everything that I knew that was musical and I laid it down before God and I said, I'm not going to pick this stuff up again unless you tell me to. As an athlete, I won't play anything. As a, as a musician, I won't even sing because I want you to be my life. I want you to be my identity. And if you are not my identity, I'll fight you for the rest of my life over this. And I recognize that. That doesn't make me brilliant. It just made me honest. And God went for my Nile right away. What's your Nile? That thing that you really think, that's where life really is. When things get rough, you, you resort to that. When you're a little bit stressed for the day, you go, I gotta have this. What's your Nile? Well, for God, he wants to be. Paul would not say that Jesus gave life. 
He said was to live is Christ. And Jesus didn't say, I give life, although he would say he does more abundantly, but first he would make clear he is life. He's the way, the truth, the life. He is. He is the resurrection and the life. The life. He is. And he wants to be yours. And today we'll walk out of here deciding whether we really want to let Jesus be what he, what he deserves to be or not. But let me tell you what awaits you if you do. Because if you're going to go religious, you're going to go one of two routes. The way of the law, where your good works outweigh your bad, or the gift of grace of Jesus Christ. Can I show you the difference? It's right in the text. Verse 17. Thus says the Lord, by this you will know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they will turn to blood. And all the fish that are in the river shall die. The river shall stink. Remember that, oh, bless us with great fragrance. Oh, no. And the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. My question, by the way, is whatever happened to the crocodiles? Do you think they stuck around in the blood-infested water? Do you think they went up on the land? That would just make things a little bit more fun for those Egyptians now, wouldn't it? Then the Lord said to Mo- spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, so remember, Moses is still whispering to his brother's ear and his brother's doing all the talking. Say to Aaron, take your rod, stretch, it over the, the, stretch your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams, over the rivers, over the ponds, over the pools of water, that they may become blood. And there will be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood, pitchers of stone. Now, there's always someone out there that would be like Professor Smarty Pants, I would like to tell you how all of these things were natural. Like, and by the way, it's, it's just as goofy to me to think that God like, knows there's going to be some natural disaster coming. So this is a really good time to cash in on it by playing the plague game. And what they'll say is that just north of the Nile, by the way, that there is this algae that can grow. And that's no doubt it's the case. And when that algae grows, by the way, it's a bit red. So the ground looks a bit red. Well, there's a couple problems because the fish love that algae and they eat it until they get bloated and big and fat, but they don't die from it, first of all. Second of all, that algae must really be amazing with some amazing tides because it bounces into every bucket and stone pitcher. And, I mean, you just start running the faucet and now it comes from the tap. I mean, that's the idea here. I think the greatest miracle in all of this is that the magicians were able to find some clean water to try to turn into blood themselves. God says it's all going to be blood. All that water. So Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters which were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants and all the water that were in the river turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died. The river stank. You might imagine so. Have you ever smelled old blood? Now, hopefully I'm not looking at you like you're a serial killer. That's not the idea. But say you've thrown something in the rubbish bin because... You got it at Sainsbury or whatever, and you didn't throw it away for a couple days, and it starts to stink, and that's just a little pad. You ever been to a butchery that hasn't been rinsed out in a day or two? It's awful. The smell is unbelievable. But to add to the odor of, you know, of old blood, which is entirely different from old spice, let's kill all the fish, too, just to add a little extra f- scent to that as well. And I think at that point... My house on the beach is gone. (laughs) So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Now listen to me, because I pray you get this. 
Moses, as a representative of the law, could wave his hand with his brother over water that was supposed to be the source of life, and it turned to what? It turned to blood. From the standpoint of the law, that life is going to be found in the blood. That's where you're going to end up. It's interesting. Even the stone pitchers, he tells us. The buckets, by the way, were used for drinking and refreshment. The stone pitchers were used for washing. So that even which made clean was found with blood. That which gave life found with blood. Enter Jesus. You ever wonder why he starts his whole miracles in Cana? Where he turns the water to new wine. You see, if you go and you trust in the law, it's going to be bloodshed. And it will end with blood. It will either be yours or another that will have to stand in testimony of your guilt. But Jesus took that very same source of life and that which was supposed to bring cleansing, six stone pots, by the way, and turned it to the new wine that God uses as a representative of his own Holy Spirit. You see, I'm not earning anything. I'm not up here because I'm earning stripes and thinking I'm going to get a good, nice home with, you know, by the coast because we, there's even no sea in heaven, so there's no coastal area there anyways. But anyways, the, so I'm not worrying about surfing. I'll do it here if, if anyone. The whole point is I do this because I love to do it, because I love to share Jesus with you. But beloved, listen, you're either going to try to stand before God and tell him how good you are until he rolls film and shows you you weren't, or you're going to stand before him with the gift of God, for which then all new life fills you. You see, I got a blood transfusion when I got a heart transfusion. And the blood of Jesus came into my veins, and it changed everything. Everything. When a person was to go to sacrifice after Exodus 50, or I should say after Exodus 25, when God talks about building a sanctuary, you were never to be perfect. God knew better. But you were to bring a perfect sacrifice. So when you stood at the door, your cover charge was a perfect sacrifice. It was never about you. So Bruno goes to the temple, to the tabernacle. The high priest takes a look at him. They're called Hengadol. And he doesn't size up Bruno. He doesn't say, you know, I think you didn't shave your head perfectly or whatever the case is. He takes a look at his sacrifice. And see, the thing was is that he may not have a choice of how perfect Bruno can be. He can try to be, but he won't be. But he has a choice over whether his sacrifice is perfect or not. He could bring the mangy old lamb that's about to die anyways. It's gross and disgusting, and it's going to die anyways. Why not set this thing on fire? Or he could take the thing that was perfect. And so the high priest looks. And listen, listen, this is the way God set it up. As that he looks and goes, let me see your sacrifice. What are you going to say is your sacrifice? And he looks and he goes, that's perfect. Come on in. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Now, you stand before God at eternity. And you have something beside you. And he says, let's take a look at it. And you say, it's my good works. I've done good. So God takes a look and he says, well, let's just see if they're perfect. And you go, wait a minute, wait a minute. I didn't say perfect works. I said good works. God says, yeah, but I need perfection here. This is heaven. This is a place for perfection. So he looks and he says, well, that was done with wrong motives. That was done so other people could see. That was done, that started out good, but that really got janky by the end of it all. And then by the end of it all, you're kind of like, wow. And you realize what you're holding in your hands is something that was miserable and ready to die anyways. As a matter of fact, what God says is that our own good works are but filthy rags in his sight. Literally dirty menstrual cloths. And the idea is simple. 
See, what God wants is to be with you in everything. And what you're saying is, look at all this stuff I did without you. Why would God ever applaud that when what he wants to do is be with you? But see, you can choose your sacrifice. So what if your sacrifice, well, what sacrifice do I know is perfect? I choose Jesus. And I look, and the father can look and say, well, what's your sacrifice? And he goes, well, let's see. Hello, son. And he knows he's perfect. Tempted in every way, yet without sin. Completely given over. The lamb that was without blemish as the sacrifice for my sins. See, isn't that grace? That God didn't say, oh, why aren't you as perfect as I expected? God knows better than that. God gave you the opportunity to say, look, you can choose your sacrifice. Make it so. And with this, even in this text, it's like, look, if you want to choose your works like Moses, what you're going to end up with is a cup full of blood. Which, by the way, unless it be the blood of Jesus, it's a blood of guilt. When the people say, his blood be on us and our children, the idea is, let his blood, his guilt be on us. I'm innocent of the blood of all men. I'm innocent of the guilt of all men. That's the idea. When God speaks to Ezekiel, and he says, look, you're a watchman, and if you speak, but the people don't listen, you're innocent of their blood. But if you don't speak, you'll be guilty. Well, with this in mind now, follow me as we bring this around. So he raised his hand, and the river turns to blood. And there is Pharaoh worshiping the river, which now is going to stank. It's going to make it a little rough to worship. The magicians of Egypt did so too with their enchantments. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard. And at this point, would you be a little frustrated if you were Moses and Aaron? And you're like, oh, come on. This one was a good one. I expected something good out of this. Now, who knows where they found even the good water in the first place? He did not heed them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and he went into his house and neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug around the river for water to drink because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. Seven days of stinky death. Dead fish, hungry crocodiles, stinky river. But let me tell you one thing I noticed on this and we'll bring this around to close, believe it or not. The magicians were never able to reverse anything that God did. They may have been able to imitate. See, God's a creator. The enemy's the imitator, but he can't reverse it. I mean, if I were Pharaoh and even roughly in my right mind, and the world gets filled with lice, I wouldn't ask you to make more lice. If the river turned to blood... I wouldn't be asking for more blood. I would want some clean water. I'd say, baby, bring a truckload of Evian up here. That will work for me. If I'm getting bit by flies, or my house is full of frogs, you really want to show me a miracle? Get them out. Even when his magicians, and we'll get there next week, God willing, God says, okay, let's go frogs next, and we'll have some fun with some frogs. Everywhere. Frogs in your toilet, frogs in your bidet, frogs in your bathtub, frogs everywhere. Don't open up your freezer or your fridge or your oven. Frog legs. That's what you're having again. You're going to have frog legs for a long time. Worse than Louisiana. And, and I tell you, with all of that, and it says, and then the magicians bring frogs up. Like, that's what you needed were more frogs, right? And that's such is the pride of man. 
But then it says that Pharaoh's going to have to go to Moses and say, can you get them out of here? See, one thing is, when God opens up a door, no one's going to be able to shut it. And that's what he promises. I open up doors no one can shut. And by the way, I shut doors no one can open either. Have you been, are your arms tired of pulling on a door God's shut? Or am I the only one who's ever had that problem? We talk about people being a one lump, two lump, three lump people. I mean, being in, in Italy for a week, there were a couple kids. You look at them and they run into the wall and you're like, that kid's a one lump kid. In other words, you got to get a lump before you change your mind. Then he ran into the wall again. I go, I guess he's a two lump kid. I'm like this kid, this kid's going to, he's going to, his head's going to look like it's got problems. Just, he's just an infinite lump kid. You're yanking on a door and God's like, look at God is not the ultimate party pooper. God has no interest in removing good things. As a matter of fact, what we read is no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing. If you ain't getting it, it ain't good. Can I just say it that way? If you're walking uprightly. God knows better than you do. Remember when you were 13 and you thought, that girl, you're going to marry her and run off into the sunset, and then you realized who, how scary she really was? Aren't you thankful God closed that door? She moved to another place, and you went, Essex? I couldn't possibly keep in touch with her in Essex. She won't even give me her Facebook stuff. And God's like, yeah, I'm closing the door. No, I really need that job, and I keep calling them, and they won't call me back. God says, I've got a better job. Don't worry, but let me remind you, God is not a God of nots. He's a God of instead of. And through everything he closes, God has something better in mind. He has always has something better in mind. And here's the deal. If God's going to open it, don't tell me how the devil closed it because he can't. That's just it. When it comes down to it, when God walks in a room, who's going to fight him? Even insane people don't fight God in a moment like that. Even when they try, they're out of the room quick. The reason I say that is by the end of this, Pharaoh's not done. He has not let go yet. I might say Pharaoh's a 10-lump kind of guy, but he's going to wind up dying as a result of it. What about you? What are you holding on to that you won't let go? What is your life right now that you won't let go of? What's your Nile? Are you living in denial? I had to say it once. (laughs) Because today... God would like to set you free. You see, in the end of it all, you're either going to be kneeling down by a flow of of blood, or you're going to be filled with the new wine of God's Spirit in such a way that all that stuff doesn't mean it anymore. And some of you, I know firsthand from speaking to you, are testimony. Testimony of how God has changed that in you. Now look at as we pray. Have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? Are you still trying to do it yourself? Are you fighting God and what you're fighting is his love and his grace and his care? Because God would like to do a miracle right now in this room. He would like to yank you out of your pit, deliver you out of your darkness. He'd like to set you free. But notice, by the way, God didn't say, but I've changed Pharaoh's heart. By the way, to harden someone's heart does not change it. It only solidifies the conclusions they've already had. God says, I'm only going to bolster his confidence in himself so that I can take down every God before we walk out of this place so that the Egyptians will come with. God wants you. He wants all of you. 
He wants to be your Lord and not just your Savior because he saved you and he has a right. Paul would say, you were bought with a price. Glorify God with that body of yours. Well, if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus, I'm going to give you that option. If you have, I invite you today with me, by the way. This is my humble prayer, and I mean this honestly. See, if there's anything that's playing the role of the Nile in my life, let God's living water replace it so that I wouldn't fight him anymore over who I really am at the core. You pray with me. God, I thank you so much for the gift of this time. I thank you for your beautiful Holy Spirit that ministers to us. I thank you for the sweet love you have demonstrated here. I thank you, God, that you are asking us to surrender, not so you can make us mindless robots, but so that we can enjoy your love. And God, I recognize today in this room that we're all, we may be in various stages in our walk with you. Some of us are still trying to figure out who in the world you are. Well, Lord, at the very foundation, you are life. That's who you are. And I pray right now, Lord God, for every person in this room, myself included, that we would stop fighting you if there's anything in us that's fighting you, trying to yank open a door that we even know in some cases you've closed. Or are not walking through a door you're holding wide open right now. And somehow we're even trying to bring the enemy into it, trying to say somehow it was his fault when you gave us a choice and we chose otherwise. But Lord, we don't want to play the victim card anymore. We want to be honest. And in that, Lord, I just pray right now that we as Christians would get right with you and just say, Lord, and I pray for myself here, that if there be anything that's playing the role of the Nile in my life, that I turn to more than you, God, I just pray right now that you would change that. That, God, you would transform. Transform this time, Lord, and transform me that I would love you more and want you more. And, God, in wanting you more, Lord, that you would become my life and in that you would torn out of me the living water you promised to give me. So I commit that to you right now, Lord God. And while every head is bowed and eyes are closed, right now, God, within this room, you know if there is anyone who is not sure or that they have or sure that they haven't said yes to you. And Lord, though we may not understand everything, we recognize that in saying yes to you, that we accept the gift that you've given us for our guilt, that you would stand beside us as the perfect sacrifice. But in that, we give you the right to be our Lord, to reinvent us at every point. And so saints, I'm going to pray this prayer and I ask you to listen. And if you agree, I ask you to say at the end of it, Amen. And what I ask you to say in that is what you're saying is, I agree, let that prayer be my prayer. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God, I confess to you, I'm not perfect. My works aren't perfect. My thoughts aren't perfect. My heart's not perfect. In and of my own strength, I'm guilty before you. I stand with blood on my own hands. But you love me. You love me so much, Father, that you would send your only begotten Son, Jesus, to die on the cross as my perfect sacrifice. Lift it up on the stick so that all of the things that hold me in bondage could be completely vanquished. You'd be the only one standing. And you took on even death itself and conquered it. 
And just like your scripture promised, you rose again on the third day. So God, I just pray right now that you would accept my surrender to you. Give me your innocence for my guilt, your life for my death, your purity for my filth. And I give you the right to reinvent me, to transform me, to reprogram me, and in every way make me the blessing you created me to be. So I'm yours. I confess Jesus not only as my Savior or ransom, but also as my Lord now as I surrender myself to you. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.